Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have an incredibly special guest, Dr. Alex Hindman, is joining us from the East Coast. Good to see you, Alex. Great to be with you, Lucas. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good, good. I'm in oh, California, sure. so that answers part of the question. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And so. it's kind of ambiguous. It's an ambiguous answer because California can be uh, quite a, a wonderful place in many respects, and, and then it can be a total disaster in other respects. Yes. At least We're dealing with though. a combination of both of those right now. <laughs> yeah. How's the weather going, though? I always loved it. In the the weather is always there. great. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect it's out there. I mean, it's besides, paradise. yeah, besides when the Santa Ana winds are blowing, but uh, sure. that's not right now. Sure. But uh, so you're in the East Coast. Yeah, so I'm in. I'm holed up here at uh, the College of the Holy Cross right now uh, in Worcester, spelled W, like almost like the sauce, like Worcestershire sauce, mm -hmm. but it's uh, it's spelled Worcester. Or I never know how Worcester. to say it. I look at yeah. it and I don't know how to say it. That's all right. That's it's all like right. Dartmouth. I, you know, I mean, I remember when I first said Dartmouth sometime and they were like, <laughs> oh, you mean Dartmouth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, no, I meant Dartmouth. I mean, yeah. I can read. <laughs> That's right. Well, they add they add syllables here for different cities. And so you have, Do they? You have Peabody, which is Peabody, right? Because uh -huh. It's Peabody. You get an extra syllable there. You uh -huh. take some out. And so it's a weird thing. That's how they tell that I'm not from around here. So it works out okay. In Tennessee, where my wife is from, they have a city called, it's spelled Milan, like in Italy. Right. That's not how they say it. They say yeah. Milan. That's really good. We're going to go down to the Milan Arsenal and look at the cows. It's so fantastic. Anyway. Well, how do you like teaching there? I like it a lot. I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm in a very good, uh, a very good department. I consider, you know, it's, in a lot of ways, you know, the academy has its challenges, of course, and uh, in a lot of other ways, you know, there's some good things going on. I mean, there's there's a whirlwind out there in a lot of environments, uh, and yeah. we're hearing about it in a lot of places. But I'm I'm very fortunate here that um, I've got a good department that kind of takes ideas seriously. Um, wow! And and that's a dying that's a dying position, and so I'm I'm quite fortunate in that regard. We we have a lot of disagreements among my colleagues and I occasionally, but you know, we can. We usually it's it's based on facts and you can surprisingly make arguments based on facts here and people will actually actually listen to it. And so mm. I really like it here that way. How the refreshing. students are decent too. Um, oh, wow. Hey, but, I like to hear that. Well, there's a bear. It's bimodal sometimes too. I mean, you got mm -hmm. some good students and some ones that are a little ragged. But, but for the So most you part, have some yeah. students that actually care about the material? Yeah, it's really surprising. I've got a great uh, former student. She's now... Uh, writing for the uh, for the Wall Street Journal and doing some stuff for the Manhattan wow. Institute. So yeah, we got some good stuff happening Manhattan around, Institute, which is kind of wow. cool. Yeah, so That's she's awesome. out there doing some stuff on um, like the Harvard case on uh, Asian admissions and some things like that, and working on some stuff. So it's really That's a hot button like, issue. Yeah. yeah so, so they're not messing around. So we got some How good cool. folks here for sure. But... And is that your office that you're in? No? Yeah, at yeah, school. So. Yeah, so they gave me they gave me a little bit of space to hang my hat for a little while mm -hmm. longer. So yeah, advantage of it for a little. Yeah, you got a file cabinet. How cool is that? I love I know, those it's things. Like, it's old school in a way. I, I would have been so excited to see that. Do you have a pencil sharpener too on the wall? Uh, one that you crank? Yeah. No, they did. But I'm actually in a room. I don't know if you can tell behind the chair over there. There's an old sink connection because I'm actually in a space that a Jesuit 
uh, priest, Catholic Jesuit priest, used to be his his living quarters. Wow. Um, and oh. now it's all been converted over. So it's kind of a okay. neat historical place in that way. Wow. Yeah. Do you have a drinking fountain in there? <laughs> I do not. No, but there's one. There's one right outside. So okay. we got we got plenty of the old school okay. stuff. The crank, pants, pencil sharpeners. And now I'll plastic. know if it's old school if you have one of these. Do you have a coat rack or a, oh. a hat thing to put your hats on? No, we don't have hat. Oh, That's one. I, I don't know. Out. I might have missed that. Man, I had that. I had that at uh, Cal State Northridge. I, my office had a coat rack. I'm not kidding you. That's how old it, and I, and I had a pencil sharpener on the, like the, the cranker one in my office. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And in some of the classrooms. And I just love seeing that stuff. That's I just really love cool. it. Well, one of well, the things they have, they have these church pews in my hallway. Oh with, yeah. With numbers on the sides. Oh yeah. Because you had assigned seats here for a long time for services oh, and stuff, so it's wild. that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. But yeah, well, I'm I'm uh, super happy for you, um, and Thanks. I think you totally deserve it, especially sure. since I know what you went through to get your doctoral dissertation done on. Um, <clears throat> let me see. I'm trying to remember his name. Was it, it was wasn't Chevy? It was, I knew it was like some <laughs> kind of a truck. Yeah, close. Uh, what was it? Toyota? Have we had a Toyota present? No, uh, we're working on it. Maybe uh, one day. Yeah, someday, maybe. Someday. Um, what? Who'd you do your dissertation on yeah, again? I love Jerry Ford. I love. Oh, Jerry that's Ford. right, Ford. <laughs> that's right. It was Gerald yeah. Ford. Okay, a yeah. Ford, not a Lincoln, as they often say. Right? He was a Ford, <clears> not a Lincoln. So, well, now Gerald Ford. You wouldn't think that that is the sexiest topic ever for wanting to spend a good chunk of your life researching. And you did spend a huge chunk of your life researching that. You went to the archives. How many times did you go to the archives? I went to the archives. I think if I recall correctly, I had, I think there were basically, I think there were four trips. There were four trips to the archives, about about a week apiece, probably. Wow. Um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, and That's I where they are. Uh, okay. I stayed in Milan, Michigan, uh, which is similar to Milan, Michigan, but I stayed at a little uh sleep in, little comfort in down the road. And so I would cart myself up to the big house where uh University of Michigan is finding some success finally. And I would go up there and Ford's library is off to the side of that. And I would go in there oh. and spend the day kind of going through his papers, which is cool. Wow. Yeah. That's probably the only Republican thing in Ann Arbor. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's yeah. It's like a, it's like an embassy of sorts, I think mm-hmm. in the middle of uh, a good way to put it, Ann a consulate. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. a consulate. Interestingly say- though, he's, he has, he's the only president to split <laughs> his library from his museum. So oh. his his museum is actually in his home, his birth city, like his hometown of Grand Rapids. So uh, on one side of the state, they got his museum. And on the other side, they have like his academic kind of papers, which is really kind of cool, too. Uh, Everybody else consolidates them in the same. Yeah. In the same place. Oh, OK. OK. Gotcha. Oh, that's an interesting detail. Uh, so what was working well, let's come back to the archives. I want to sure. do, I too, totally want to come to the archives again, because I did one of my dissertation 
research tools was archival methods. And I have a special heart for people that work in archives. <laughs> um, yeah, no. But um, how did you come to, well, should I ask you this? Do you like Gerald Ford? I do. I came to like him more, um, actually, which is a good sign when you do some of these, some of these projects. <laughs> I, uh, it was one of those things that you, I, so our, our, our late friend, Michael Yolman worked for, uh, for Jerry Ford for a little while in his justice department. Yeah. And one of the things that, so he was our professor at Claremont and, uh, what was his position things, again? I think he was the, at the in the Ford White House, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he was in the Ford Justice Department. He was the Assistant Attorney General yeah. of Legal Policy, I think. So there were he was two rungs down um, from the Attorney General uh, when he was in. So was the, in the Assistant. So there was another Assistant Attorney General at the same time for Legislative Affairs named. Oh, there was an OLC, the legislative, yeah, legislative policy was, OLC was Antonin Scalia at the time. I've heard of that guy. Yeah, so yeah, he's around, he's around. I've heard he's of that guy. A bit. You may have heard of another guy in that senior leadership staff. There's another Rob, guy too. Robert Bork was there with him. Ah. Um, and then uh, Richard Thornburg, actually, the <clears> governor <throat> of my home state of Pennsylvania, um, was okay. also there. So there was this really interesting kind of really neat synergy that that Mike Yolman talked about with me Amazing. a lot during the Ford years yeah. about how they felt embattled. Yeah. And so I was like, well, what can I do that's kind of in that in that wheelhouse? Um now that's when, how, that, how so the idea took off. Were yeah. you in a Yolman class when uh a former Ford employee were you in you know, well, actually, he was an, a political appointee, right? He was yes. confirmed by the Senate, right? That's right. Yulman yeah. was, and That's and Scalia, right. yeah, okay, yeah, that whole crew, and they came in about, I don't know, four months into the Ford administration. So it took Ford. Okay. Ford had another attorney general, and the late um, Larry Silverman, the judge, Judge Silverman, mm -hmm. who just passed away probably like two weeks ago. DC Circuit. DC Circuit, yeah. Yeah. And he was kind of the transitional figure that helped Ford get the Justice Department kind of out of the Nixon era and uh, into the Ford and pulled all these guys together. And I wow. think Judge Silverman kind of gave Yolman and Scalia and those guys, that young kind of young society of those guys, a real start. Um, yeah. And then when Yolman went to the White House, uh, when Reagan won, yeah, um, I, I saw this on his. Uh, I never knew this, but yeah. I saw this and I wouldn't have believed it. I, I would have, it would have been hard for me to believe it if I didn't see it with my own eyes, but on the YouTube of his, uh, <clears throat> the James Wilson Institute put yes, this, uh, memorial up. I don't know if you saw that. And, uh, and there was a guy in the audience that I recognized his voice and he was Yulman's assistant. Yeah. Uh, during that time when he worked at the White House and the camera turns over to him and it, it's the it was then the then attorney general, the current attorney general yeah. of the United States yeah. sitting there. Uh, William Barr, actually, he's been attorney general twice at, at the time he was. And because this was in uh, 2000. When was this memorial done? It was it would have been 2000, 
20, I believe. Yeah. I think in February right or before, something. Yeah. Like right before we all shut down. It was down before the shutdown. Yeah. 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 And no, Clarence I mean, Thomas was there. Such and a weird he was prominent. He was prominently featured, but you couldn't miss Clarence Thomas sitting there next to Charles Kessler and Hadley Arcus. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, uh, for some reason, Christopher DeMuth and, uh, William Barr were both sitting in the audience and and I mean I just recognized his voice and then I was like holy cow that's the attorney general he's talking about my professor yeah and he was just an assistant at the time you know just like like yeah like a paid intern kind of assistant kind of thing that's what I got I got the sense he also had Yolman mentioned he had a close connection to Josh Bolton who was the uh, chief of staff to George W. Bush and so there's all these folks, and I'm surprised because, as you know, Yolman never talked about this aspect of I his know. reach, like humility to a fault in a way. And so it actually drove me out, nuts because I, I could never yeah. tell what I was dealing with. Right. No, I got you. And it was one of those things like we would we would find out that he had these connections around, and I'm still kind of running into people that said, oh, you were a student of Mike Yolman's. Oh, okay. He helped me get my job. And I, okay, sure. Like. It's just these weird, weird yeah. connections that he has everywhere and stuff. But he was the one. So interesting story. One of the things I did for him was we would drive him to the airport. So it's one day from Claremont, uh, it's like 4 a.m. or something like that, because he had to take an early flight to get back to the East Coast. And I pitched the dissertation idea to him for Jerry Ford in the car. And this was like the fifth idea I had pitched to to Mike Yolman. And so we're zipping across wow. the 210 and down the 57 to go to to go to LAX. And I start pitching this idea and he goes, let me think about it and gets on the plane. And when he landed at wherever he was, I got a call. He said, Heinemann, start working it up. And that was and that was the genesis of it. Um, and and he always said that there's stuff in the Ford administration that we had to deal with that really tested the office, like really showed he said that i think the constitutional structure of the thing is more durable than people want to people want to admit sometimes and wow. so that kind of started the process and started the wheels turning and then i realized mm -hmm. i knew virtually nothing about the level of history that i needed to learn about that whole nixon watergate period so then it was just sort of a <clears throat> deep dive into a bunch of the a bunch of the sources and things so the archival research was that getting it that was that providing the history or what was that providing for you so so for me for my purposes right so i used a lot of biographies um initially so because i got to get my cast of characters down of who you know who was who uh just generally kind of some economic data to give a little bit of context and background because the weird thing about as you know lucas when you go into archives you have these individual pieces of the story so you find all these sort of shards of evidence around and then you have to kind of contextualize them in the broader in the broader history and so that was what i had to do so the nice thing about the archives is you can find the actual paper that ford you know said okay i guess we're done in saigon in the in the evacuation of vietnam and you see that actual piece of paper so that's the cool like nerd fun of doing archival work wow um, but before that it's trying to get an idea of the context of that now, did picture. you have to wear gloves? I was fortunate I did not have to wear gloves, no. Were um, were these pieces of paper 
in plastic or no, actually they wouldn't have been in plastic, but what were they in? No, they were, it was really kind of Boulders. open air almost. Yeah. Like it was almost like I opened the filing cabinet, the ancient filing cabinet behind yeah. me, I pull it open and then, you know, you know it's, it's most of that stuff. I'm embarrassed that I asked if it was in plastic because I just said that I took archival research. And <laughs> there's no way it would have been in plastic because uh, that stuff binds to the to sure. the uh, ink and destroys the document. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing that was cool is some of the stuff, like the really like high touch, like everyone wants to see the paper that did the pardon. So for the stuff that I was into, if you wanted to see it, that stuff's all like layered up behind all sorts of like you know, preservation materials and stuff, mm -hmm. but the real one. So they photocopy it and then they put it in the, they put it in the stuff. And so you'd have a copy for preservation, um, which is kind of neat to see. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of, of archives. Uh, when you pitched your thing to Yulman on that car ride, sure. did you know that you were going to have to do archival research? I didn't quite have an idea of how it was how it was going to go, and I, when I mentioned it to him, he said, "Yeah, we wrote a lot of letters back and forth. There's a lot of memos that we wrote about this." And I was like, "Well, that would be, that would be kind of good to see, right?" And his thing was, "Yeah, but they're probably in his paper somewhere or whatever. Go see what you can find." In a way, he would send me off to go hunt around, and I was fortunate enough the Ford Library. Um, it's a great operation up there, by the way. So they have, their foundation is very active. And so I was able to apply and they gave me a couple bucks. I think it was like a $2,000 travel grant or something like that to fund my travel to get back and forth. You got your, you got your Denny's money. I got my Denny's money. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Cramming down a breakfast smile or whatever it is. Motel six. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And schlepping around. So I went up there yeah. and I'm a, I'm a Pennsylvania guy. And so I this went is before there. Uber, everybody. Before Uber, yeah. Before Lyft. <laughs> before How I, did you get around? Did you hitchhike? So, no, I, I drove it because at the time I would get go. A rental? I went to. Um, so oh, this you was drove. The time. Yeah, okay. I drove. So I was living in Buffalo at the time. Um, and that, so I pitched the idea to Yolman. Like six months later, uh, it was right around the 2008 housing crash. And so we ran, I ran out of money. And so I moved in with my brother in Buffalo for a little bit. And then I uh, drove from Buffalo to Michigan for a week at a time. And I'd go hole up in, in Michigan and go through and go through the Ford stuff. Um, wow. But it was a lot of fun. And he's, he's an yeah. all-American athlete. So that was the crazy thing. So yeah, he has this right. weird he was. football kind of connection. And so in Michigan, like you walk into the lobby and they have his helmet and they have his jersey, and they have all of this stuff from when he played. And then you kind of wheedle your way back to the back, and then you find, like, the legislative veto or something like that, you know? Oh, he went to the University of Michigan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he played football there. Played, yeah, he was a center there, so he was a starting center there. Um, okay. For all four years, he was at the University of Michigan. Okay. And then Did he, he ever play up, pro? He was offered, this is the cool thing, he was offered contracts with the Detroit Lions and the Green Bay Packers. And he wow. turned them both down to go to Yale Law School. So it's this odd <clears throat> wow. kind of pattern with him. But they, they have his letters from the Detroit Lions offering him a contract and stuff. It's really kind of cool. Oh, yeah. that's cool. They kept yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I was thinking of Byron White. 
that's uh, how how did i get gerald ford mixed up with byron white <laughs> but byron white was the i was i knew there was some high up guy that played professional football yeah and he was also a lawyer and yeah. he was a decent guy from yeah, all accounts put, yeah white. no byron white played for byron the steelers white. for a while yeah. yeah wizard white i think was his name but wow it's, that you whole don't normally generation see that. of guys. That whole generation of guys are really like Renaissance guys in a lot of ways. I always feel like that greatest generation type. Yeah, know? it does have a nostalgic feeling. Sure. Even though there's certain things about the New Deal that make me a little queasy. Me and too. The Great Society. But um, do, are you a sports guy? A little do bit. You like sports. Okay. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. So was that a major connection with Ford then, or was that just kind of like, eh? Well, take it or leave for, it. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that he was, I think it was, he's one of the most athletic presidents we've had. So for all the times they show him on like Chevy Chase bumbling out of the plane or falling mm -hmm. over or whatever, he actually, I mean, when you, when you line up our presidents he, in terms of his collegiate athletics and all of that, he was mm -hmm. actually some of the, you know, one of the most athletic guys we've had. So mm -hmm. it's this odd kind of, kind of thing. So that did connect with me a little bit. I mean, I think, I think the big thing for me was this is a guy who was like a suburban dad, right? He's a guy you want to have a beer with. And so you say, hey, you want to clean out my gutters? And I feel like you could, he was like every man in a, in a lot of ways. He was the least likely in my view, I think to actually want to be, like he didn't necessarily want to do that job initially. And so I think as a conservative, right? That's a huge, that's yeah. a hugely important thing. It's these guys that have 10 point utopian plans to make our world a better place. When the reality of it is, is sometimes doing nothing is actually a decent strategy. To be a that's, good that's a deep point right there. Yeah, yeah. I think that might be the whole theme that you just identified. I think, yeah, I think, I think that might be a point of connection for me and other people with Gerald Ford. The yeah. thing I like about him the most, it's not that he played football. It's yeah. not, not even that he turned down those contracts, which is pretty impressive. It's pretty cool, yeah. I mean, I don't know what his motivation was for going to Yale Law School, though. Yeah. I guess that would depend on what the what the difference of the motivation was. Yeah. But um, is it true that he did? Well, I mean, do we really have him down? What was his motivation for going to law school? Yeah, so this is one of those things. I think it was one of the things that we talk about sometimes with our students. Like they they see the law as a way to gain, I think, some financial security. And so the interesting thing about Ford's background, right, is he was born um, Leslie King in Omaha, Nebraska. And his father, his biological father, was an abusive father. Um, and so his mom left, moved back with her family to Grand Rapids. Um and found a found a second husband, got married, and Ford changed his name to identify right with that being his new dad. And I think there's some element of the difficulties of his family um, that might have compelled him to law school, or he wanted to do law school. He was kind of, I think he wanted to practice law genuinely, um, and so he wanted to come back to Michigan and, and and do that. And he did for a little bit before World War II, and then like a lot of other buddy, a lot of other guys at that time. He went off and um, was on the USS Monterey for a little bit, where he was the physical education officer, given his background at Michigan. So there's this, this interesting kind of interplay in his path. Um, but the decision to go to law school, I, I haven't quite been able to suss it out, but I'm, I'm kind of 
thinking that that was in that kind of looking for financial security, looking for a career. Um, okay. No way. All right. Um, now, why? What was the link with Congress then? How did he ever want to do that? You know, yeah, why, what, what's the sense of why you wanted to go, to go into Congress? Yeah, who would want to do that, right? I mean, it's kind of this one, this odd thing. I think he came back from World War II. Um, okay. And like a lot of these guys, I think he, he tried to practice law for a while. Uh, and the isolationism that was kind of common in Western Michigan at that time, um, and, and Senator Vandenberg, right, from, from Michigan, had this kind of shift and change of heart where he was this really staunch, like Lindbergh isolationist before World War II. And then after World War II, they said, well, the world's new. We need some form of American global leadership. And Ford kind of always fit in that category. He, he kind of saw the need for American leadership and sort of the beacon of hope to being around the world. And he said, look, you know, all these guys that are coming back, we've got to get involved. Um, and I think that was the big, that was the big impetus to convince him to try and run. But he did this kind of unique thing. He, there was a guy that was in the seat um, and Ford did this masterful stroke of political strategy. He waited till the absolute filing deadline before he announced his candidacy to take on this incumbent. And in Western Michigan, there's a deep sort of Dutch reform church out there. And there, there's a very, there's a lot of stability that comes from those um, folks out, out in Western Michigan. And so they would return incumbents on such a regular basis uh, that, that they were relatively stable. And so Ford comes in and he says, you know what, this guy's a bit of an isolationist. It's time for a new blood in this, but I can't take him on too soon. And so we waited right up to the filing deadline, jumped into the race and out hustled the incumbent in the last, you know, whatever the whatever the distance was between the filing deadline and the primary, and he was able to unseat the unseat the uh, current incumbent. What was that guy's name? The Jonkman, Jonkman, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I think that. What year was that that he first went to Congress? That would have been nineteen forty. I think it was the forty-eight election. I think he went in in forty-eight. I okay. could be wrong. That I might need to fact check that one, but yeah, for, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was forty-eight. Because that would be so he was in. I know yeah. he was in Congress for twenty years, over twenty years. Yeah, about twenty-five years in the House. Yeah, so that okay. would be that would line up. I think if I do. He the was the minority right. leader, right? Yeah, so that's another crazy story. He had always been kind of. He got to the House and he fell in love with it. He really liked the House of Representatives. So his dream was to become Speaker, and so in working with Don Rumsfeld at the time, and this is how Rumsfeld and Ford got linked up, they took on Chuck Halleck, who was the kind of like the old guard Republican establishment guy. And Ford was the new kind of upstart insurgent and went to war with, with the current minority leader in the House. And I think that was, that might've been 52 or 56, mid fifties, um, that Ford kind of rolled in what was it, that guy's name again? Uh, Chuck Halleck, H-A-L-L-E-C-K. Um, and and they called him they, they called them the Young Turks, not like the not like the television show, right, or the uh -huh. the podcast on the left, but they called these insurgent young Republicans the Young Turks, and they said, look, these guys are pre World War II. We're the generation of the future. 
and and this is the future of the Republican Party, and they kind of came in and unseated that old that old guard Republican, um, which really was kind of neat. So there's a fighting side of Ford, but it's always in the always in the legislature. Like he was a legislator's legislator, um, and he carried some of those political practices into the White House when he later got to the White House. And it took a while for essentially my argument is it took him a while for the Constitution to kind of change his soul in a way, to change his character in a way, to make him more presidential. And so that's the whole move. And I think that that kind of, in terms of sort of high constitutional theory, that's kind of the big takeaway, I think, from the Ford presidency. What made this suburban dad that everybody kind of likes, this 25-year congressman, into a moderately decent, moderately decent president? And that's kind of the big kind of the big story. But it's really kind of cool when you stand back and you think about um, just just his his formation was in Washington, but not in the executive branch. Um, and he was Nixon's safe pick. Like no one no one thought that Jerry Ford would be the guy, but it sort of shifted in and became uh, became the became the crowning achievement, I think, in some way of the Nixon presidency, that it's ultimately what saved, I think, the country after Watergate. I think we would have been a much worse place without him. Oops, I lost you there, Lucas. Yeah, sorry, I had it on mute. Oh, that's um, okay. Gotcha. Uh, thanks for telling me. Yeah, for uh, sure. Happens all the time. That's okay. Um, so I pulled up the uh, book on on YouTube for everybody. Obviously, if you're watching on YouTube, you don't need me to tell you that. <laughs> but the everybody else on uh, on audio only, I'm I'm looking at the book right now. It's called Gerald Ford and the Separation of Powers, and I was prompted to pull it up because of what you said about his soul changing uh, when he changed institutions. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, separation of powers and I guess you are too, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it's the, yeah, I think it's the crowning piece of our, of our constitutional system. Wow. I think at the, I think at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's all that keeps us from losing our freedom. Right. I mean, it's right. one thing, it's one thing to say, you know, like we have every, every country in the world has a bill of rights where they list all these things out. And the only the only thing that keeps it kind of from going off the rails is if we have that tension that exists between disparate power centers fighting one another. And and the thing about Ford and the thing I like about Ford and where he doesn't get enough credit. And I, I don't think he was even self-conscious of it in the way he needed to be, perhaps. But he, I think, saved the idea that a president could tell Congress no. You know, that a president could stand up to Congress and say, you know what, I don't think you're doing the right thing here. Um, and that's you... because a, a lot of people think, well, maybe you should fill it out, fill, fill it in for us a little bit, because I, the people who are there don't maybe need to be reminded. But actually, sure. a lot of them maybe do need to be reminded of just what it was like. Yeah. And during that time, it was so the the nixon era with vietnam and everything that was so caustic and yeah. divided and nixon of course didn't help anything at all yeah. 
Um, yeah, although I think people are more hard, harder on him than maybe they should be on some I agree. things. I agree. I think when you stand yeah. back, yeah. Nixon is the dominant figure of the last sort of, I don't know, because it's 50 years. If you were to look at the 50-year period from the end of World War II until his fall and maybe even into the 90s before his death, right? He's the dominant figure in American politics, second only maybe to the Kennedy family in an odd way, right? This kind of it's very awkward. <laughs> I know it's a weird, it's a weird thing, much more awkward in a lot of ways. But he was always kind of looming there from the from right. the McCarthy era stuff and That's his right. investigation on HUAC and all of that. He is a candidate for president in 1960. And then there were always the questions of will he run, will he not run, what's gonna happen to him. He was always right around that outside piece. And I always felt he got he got a bit of a raw deal. Um, I do too. I can understand why he was so paranoid because of what he was dealing with. I mean, I, I, from what I understood, if you listen to the debate with him and Kennedy, the people who listened thought he won. Yeah. But the people who watched it thought Kennedy won because they had to actually see Nixon's face and yeah. see him sweating. Yeah. I mean, this is the crazy thing. There was a substantive guy. I mean, this is the Nixon too. People forget there was a checkers speech where Nixon really was one of the first political actors to really get behind television. So there was a bit of a scandal right around the time of Eisenhower when Eisenhower had picked him as vice president. And so there was a, there was serious talk in the Eisenhower administration of dropping Nixon from the ticket, find somebody else who doesn't have kind of this question about how he had campaign finance at the time. Um, and, and Nixon buys an hour on television like you could do that, right? Mm. He goes on and he talks about, you know what, and my little dog checkers over here, he'll write, you know, and it's this whole like visual kind of thing. So the fact that he drops the ball in 60 on the debate and kind of sweating mm. and not quite put together right visually, but still whip smart substantively. He really got hung up in that Camelot kind of machine. That That's interesting. Trying to construct around the Kennedys, like Kennedys, you know, like selling Kennedy like um, fat, high fashion or something like that. You know? Yeah, so, I knew that Eisenhower had second thoughts and didn't particularly like him, but I didn't know that he bought an hour of TV. It was to, like an, yeah, to make wow. his case in a way. Yeah. Wow. He brought his dog and he talked about his yeah. dog. I think, And so it was this weird kind of hokey yeah. thing. And That's Eisenhower was furious, but he couldn't yeah. do anything about it because yeah. it galvanized the Republican base. Gotcha. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but <laughs> yeah. Well, he was, um, didn't he run for Nixon? He didn't he run for off? He ran for Governor of California, I think, in 1962. Is that right? I think that's right. He tried to he rehabilitate lost. his. Yeah, he yeah. tried to rehabilitate his Obviously. stuff. And that wilderness years was a little tough on him, from what I've gathered, too. Like he, yeah. Next thing you know, he's a, he's an attorney, I think, in New York or something. And he's in New York, of all places, when well, uh, Reagan won. Reagan was, uh, Reagan took over instead in uh, California. Well, uh, you know, so those er, that era of the 70s the early 70s nixon for those of you who don't recall of course i don't recall i wasn't born there but i do yeah. remember reading it and yeah. just being amazed just sit in this for a second when 
Lyndon, maybe go back to Lyndon Johnson. Sure. Lyndon Johnson takes over because of the death of a president. Right. And then you got the Civil Rights Act and stuff, and he's he's kind of flipping on the the Democrats and turning the, the Southern Democrats, at least starting to turn the party a bit. Yeah. And he was a Southerner himself, so he, he had some credibility, I guess, with some people. Yeah. And he's so popular... He easily, easily wins in 64. I mean, it's just a nightmare election yes. for Goldwater. I mean, yeah. I kind of like Goldwater, but but, right. but he right. got killed. I mean, yeah. Goldwater got totally demolished. And, and some of that, right, was the legacy of the Kennedy family. I mean, some of that is the death of a president a year yes. before. And so that. You know, yes. Goldwater might have got caught up sure. in some of that, too, I think. But anyway. Well, yes, and I think it's it's still kind of hard to explain. You know, I've got students who go, yeah, he, he voted against the Civil Rights Act. And he did not support it. But it's hard to explain to somebody that has a very low attention span why that is, because he had principled constitutional reasons for opposing it. Yeah. He might have been lined up temporarily with some Democrats that didn't like it for other reasons. Right. Right. But those other, de those Democrats might've had constitutional reasons too, but um, they also had other reasons. Yeah. But Goldwater is not like the most waspy name you've ever heard in your whole life. And right. once you start digging into it a little bit, right. you realize right. he's desegregated the Arizona national guard. He's got a Jewish background um, he had a black female chief of staff. He's this is not like the carrying card of the Ku Klux Klan, exactly. Um, right. and uh, any case, he gets killed and not killed literally, but he gets uh wiped out in the election, yeah. But then LBJ, I mean, you would have think that this guy's unstoppable, and then just, just a few years later, he is yeah. done, yeah, no, and. Not. Then who comes out of nowhere? Nixon. Nixon pretty, comes back. Pretty crazy. And in 72, what was, do you recall what the uh, the wipeout was for it the was, Republic? It was a significant piece. I want to say that, I want to say that McGovern, so McGovern ran against Nixon in 72 and only won two states, I think. I think that that's correct. I think they yeah. only won two states. Like it's an amazing landslide. However, it's, they figured it yeah. out. For Nixon in 72, it's remarkable, right? Right. Um, yeah, he he wins California. Yeah. He wins, I think he won Hawaii. Yeah. Um, he won, uh, I don't think he won Massachusetts. I don't remember. Massachusetts was a little bit more moderate at that period of time. I'd have to look that yeah, too. Maybe it I think was it Rhode was, Island. Maybe it was yeah, one of those North, New right. England states, states, I think. I, I, I don't remember. You could look it up, but we could yeah, yeah. look it up, but. But um, he you would think he was unstoppable. Stoppable. That's right. And then just just it's like you sneezed and he's he's on the ropes. Yeah, and it, the the as Watergate came out, it's such a weird period of time, right? So once from 1960 to 1980, you never had one president. You didn't have a president that completed two terms in office. You did not have a single president between 1960 and 1980 that completed two to two full terms, right? Because you had Lyndon Johnson that came in. And so he was, 
um, he was in a spot, right? So he finished out Kennedy's term, did his own term, but then didn't stand for re-election in 68. And then you had Nixon who comes in and doesn't finish his term with, with, the, with the Watergate stuff. So it's this weird, it's this weird piece, right? So you have this whole kind of collapse in 72. Nixon looked like he was flying high. And like you said, all of a sudden, he, he has this catastrophic sort of tragic fall. And it's because he has this, he has this kind of paranoia. I do think he had some real doubts. He always had that. We, we talk about imposter syndrome today in a way. He was always envious of people from the East Coast. And he went to Duke and he sort of went to Duke and he always felt bad that it wasn't one of the Ivy Leagues. And he came from Yorba Linda, right? And so he had this Whittier kind of Southern California connection. And at the time, I mean, the, Southern California is like one of the great sort of metropolises of the world now in a way. But at the time, like he had this deep sense of inferiority relative to these, these guys on the East Coast. And I think that paranoia carried throughout Nixon's life. And so when it came time to be fearful in 72, even when he didn't have necessarily reasons to believe that he was terribly vulnerable, he engaged in activities um, because he saw a lot, he was skeptical of everybody and sort of nervous all the time. And I think that led people around him to read that nervousness in a way that would um, make them take actions that ultimately turned out to be illegal in the in the case of the Watergate break-in and some of the other activities of the plumbers. But the fact that Nixon wasn't got on actually authorizing it, he was got sort of for the impeachment on the fact that he sort of tried to cover it up. And sometimes people lose sight of that, right? It was the fear he had right, of being right. caught that got him got him kind of in trouble. So right. 72, right? Right. Yeah. He does that thing, right? And then for the whole next Crazy. two years, there's this slow drip of Watergate. Um, and he never comes out and comes clean, but he claims he doesn't have anything to hide. And a lot of Republicans around him are saying, Mr. Nixon, if you have nothing to hide, then come clean about it. Let's see all the tapes. Let's see what it no is. No kidding. And and Ford said, I wanted to trust him. I took his word. I took his word. And then eventually in sort of mid-74, right, um, the tapes come out, the decision of the Supreme Court to release the unredacted version um, to Watergate's special prosecutors. And then once that happened, Nixon knew he was had, and the dominoes started to fall a lot more rapidly. Um, but that Watergate period, people don't realize, like, what, so there's Watergate, <clears throat> But we also have the worst economic contraction since the Great Depression during that period. So finally, Europe and Asia are starting to come back online. And so our production advantage in sort of the, the economy starting to go. I mean, we're in a weird spot, but between night, March of 1974 and December of 1974, right before Ford took office, the Dow Jones lost 37% of its value. Like there was just this plummet. Um, oil oil between October of uh, 1973 and early 1974 rose from a, I mean, it's crazy when we think about gas prices now, right? But oil per barrel at the time, at the start in October of 73, was $1.77 a barrel, $1.77 a barrel. And by the end of it, by, by early 74, it was $10. So you have this massive increase in the price of oil. And a lot of Americans are hurting. And they feel like their government's collapsing because of Nixon's problems, right? 
And Vietnam is sort of in this kind of limbo where we have combat troops out, but we're not fully out yet. And so is there always a fear we'll have to go back in? And so Americans' heads are all spinning during this period. And that part is lost on modern Americans. Like we, we feel we have it rough and there's, we're at each other's throats in a lot of ways. But there was a really similar kind of period there where you know, the economy's in the tank. There's a lot of foreign policy challenges, right? And we got this questionable governance from Washington that we didn't quite know what to do with. Um, wow. It's a really weird period. Sounds like a worse period than most people remember growing yeah. up. Yeah, I asked my mom about it. She goes, I was in college. I was trying to get out of college, right? And yeah. so she wasn't thinking about it in the same way. That, you know, but she remembers about. gas lines maybe, and she remembers yeah. uh, in. Like I remember asking, uh, where I didn't ask him, but Bissett, our one of our professors, uh, said what his interest rate rate was for his first mortgage, and it was in the double digits. Yeah, it's like twelve percent. Insane. I can't even imagine taking a home loan out for for that kind of a. I I just don't get it. But blows my mind, actually. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is intense, and. You have the institution of the presidency. You got the institution of Congress. Would yep. you say that Congress during this time is growing in power or uh, so, and then the president presidency is waning or how would you put it? Yeah. So it's a weird thing. So this is one of the things, as you know, Lucas, when we we try to weigh sort of dimensions. So I, there's two parts to this, right? Constitutionally. The powers, the nice thing about this is the powers of both branches generally, with some minor exceptions, have never really changed, right? So 1787 to now, we don't really have a lot of change in terms of the, the actual formal powers. Now, how we view these institutions is wildly fluctuating. Um, and so I think you're dead right. The presidency is now at its weakest point politically, right? Watergate pretty much tarnished it. The press played a large part in this, convincing everybody that it's it's a systemic problem, as we hear about often, right? This is a systemic problem with the presidency, and therefore we need to reform it. And so Congress comes in as the natural sort of antithesis of the presidency. And they're like, you know what? Richard Nixon was a bad guy. We're going to prevent every other president from being a bad guy in the future. Um, and so they roll in on a white horse, thinking that they're on a white horse. And we're going to reform everything. We're going to find all the corruption. We're going to write laws that'll prevent bad moral character, right? And that never works out, right? That never works out. And Congress thought they could do it. And and Ford, to his credit, throughout his presidency, kind of held the line on that. So yeah, presidency kind of contracted. Congress now, big, think, right? Okay. Do you think that Ford was on that bandwagon of we're going to make? the uh presidency good again or something <laughs> yeah yeah so so the neat thing about ford right so he comes in he after so after the 72 election in october of 73 literally the same month as the saturday night massacre spiro agnew had left and ford is appointed to take over as nixon's vice president so for the year when watergate is really starting to collapse from october of 73 to the time Ford takes office in August of 74. Ford's now part of the Nixon administration as his new vice president. He gets there just as Watergate's starting to implode. 
Um, so the Saturday Night Massacre, tell tell everybody what that is. Sure. So the Saturday Night Massacre in October uh, of 73 was when uh, Nixon decided he wanted to fire the special prosecutor that was investigating the Watergate break in Archibald Cox. Yeah. And so he goes through and he calls up his attorney general and says, listen, I need you to fire the special prosecutor. <laughs> the attorney general refuses, resigns. They go to the next guy on the list at the Justice Department, says, listen, fire Archibald Cox. He refuses. He gets he resigns. The next guy in line is Robert Bork. And Robert Bork says, I'm afraid Nixon is just going to continue to go down the call list for the judiciary. Yeah, I'll fire Archibald Cox and take that hit to save Nixon from going down through that through that tear. And so that's what happens. It's when it's when Watergate really blows up because the public. So Ford gets appointed and then the public all of a sudden realizes, holy man, if Nixon's reacting like this, there must be something to this. Why would yeah. he do this to himself? Right. And so now Ford is riding that wave of trying okay. to figure out what's going on. Incidentally, the war powers resolution is passed in the same month and the Arab Israeli oil crisis is all happening in that month of October of 73. So it's a really tumultuous month. Um <clears throat> And so Ford comes in there and and uh, so Ford's kind of committed to become the vice president, but it may be a job he didn't want to have, you know? Uh, yeah, but do you think that Ford ever thought that the, that Congress can help the president be moral? Yeah, that's a great question. To that's just put it really crudely. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe, Basically what I'm asking you is, was Ford an idiot? <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, Which, it, it was a bit of a bumbler initially, right? But the but the idea, I think the one was thing, he naive in that sense? I think he was. I think he was initially. Okay. I think a lot of his presidency, he talked about when he started coming in, he wanted to have a good marriage with Congress, right? He wanted to get along. He wanted to paper over the differences, yeah. and symbolically, Very, I think that's the right gesture, right? It's a good gesture. But then he quickly found that they're not constitutionally his friend, right? The separation of powers matters. These guys think like congressmen. I'm supposed to think like a president. And that means we're going to come to blows occasionally. It's not going to be a great marriage, but yeah. it's going to be one of contention and, and disagreement. And I think he brought that into the office. So that initially he had this kind of conciliatory feeling about it. Everybody's like kissy, kissy. Yeah. Huggy, huggy. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're colleagues. You know? Yeah. We love each other. Um, it's fine. Yeah. And how long do you think it took before it was like, well, we're former colleagues and I'm over here and you're over there? Yeah. It came pretty quick. I think they were always personally I days, think weeks. What do you uh, think? Well, yeah. Hours? So, the, so the pardon came a month in to Ford's term. Okay. So Ford so came in weeks. in August and that's like four weeks. So Ford wakes up on a Sunday morning. Mm. and goes to church mm. comes out of church walks over to the white house has asked for national tv time mm-hmm. and uh announces a pardon of richard nixon wow, and none of the other none of the other co-conspirators but there was no like pr op on the front end of this so americans literally weren't prepped for the idea that the president ford would would pardon nixon and so it hit like a ton of bricks like yeah. it was it brought all of that old watergate stuff back ford comes into office has like 70% approval rate. Like the public loves him. 
Yeah. Um, and then overnight he sheds like 30 odd points off the Gallup poll. It's he, had the largest he had to know that was going to happen. Yeah. I think he knew he was going <laughs> to take a hit, but this is the nice thing about the presidency as you know, Lucas too, like presidents are invested with the constitution to give them a platform to do things that we want them to do, but we might not think they got right. Like an unpopular right. decision. And yeah, I think he, sure. he embraced that. He said, look, we can't have a president in a, in a, in the docks, right. In a courtroom. Right. Um, Federalist 71 has a great, is it 71 that has that famous quote from uh, Hamilton where he says that um, he's talking about the four-year term and kind of how it insulates the president yeah. from popular opinion, passions yeah. of the moment, people that, that, that uh, want your, yeah, your, uh, the rather than deserve your approval. He said it yeah. so much better than that, but yeah, no, there's that uh, section. I think it's the servile pliancy section. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, flatterers that'll yeah, come. Right. Yeah, there's flatterers that'll come and convince you that they're on your on your side, and then all of a sudden, you know. That's not so, exactly what we want a president to do, right? We don't. We want a president to do the right thing, not the popular thing. Um, yeah. Um, well, it seems like we want him to do both because we want him to be representative of us. Sure. We don't want him to uh, turn, get elected, and then just surprise everybody with what he thinks is right which doesn't seem to be why everybody voted for him, I guess. Yeah. Now, okay, so this is helpful for me because I'm getting, I'm trying to get my handle on, on Ford a bit. Sure. And we have a sense of the times and they just were crazy. Yeah, it was really rough. And I love how you set that up about the pardon. He goes to church. Yeah. It's on a Sunday. Do you think that had something to do with his decision? Huge huge for him. And he talks, there's actually um, a minister that talked to him and talks about how forgiveness was the theme, right? Oh. And so the idea of national forgiveness and yeah, Nixon did some bad stuff. And I think Ford. Interesting I mean, to have the sermon notes from that day. If that's oh, in the archives, probably, probably not, but it would be great. You know, to the see sermon that. message. Yeah. That would be neat to know what they talked about that day. Yeah. What church, what church was that? I think it was, I think it was the one across the street. I think it was that the first, that was the, the historic church that Adams was at. I think he went right across the street to the, the yellow church. I can see it and I can't think of the name of it right now. It's the yellow church across from Lafayette Square there. I believe that's where he had gone. Um, and what, what was his, um, he was Protestant. Yeah, he was a Protestant. I think he was in that. He was, uh, I think it was a, I think it was an Episcopalian church. I, I, think I, I could be wrong on this Lucas. Okay. we might have to check that out but well he wasn't one of these uh 700 club kind of christians where he no. was tuning into well i guess he he kind of was like a focus on the family kind of a person but that was before focus on the family right. but he was he wasn't one of these holy rollers i guess it was subtle it was it was a subtle stable kind of faith right. in a way yeah, yeah um midwestern i mean when you think right. of a midwestern very polite very yeah. uh nice people um right. you know they would if your car broke down they would give you a hand 
but they're not going to try to convert you and get you to come to Jesus as they're doing that. You know, yeah, it's not it like wasn't Campus Crusade or something. No, like that. It, was no right. it was a different gotcha. kind of old mainline kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. helpful. So he, and you believe he believed in God? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely, I think that's a, that's pretty clear. Well, he was sworn okay. in on Ecclesiastes, a time to heal, that line from Ecclesiastes. Okay. time to heal and he was very much um if you look at his speeches all through his speeches they're all infused with kind of this um really deep references to christianity and there's actually some coded language like that would so what we call coded language in political science where there's biblical references in the diction right mm -hmm. um that that one would hear and res it would resonate almost almost lincolnian in some sense about where Bible references kind of appear in his speeches in subtle ways. Do you have a, kind of Do you have an example that we can kind of? Yeah, no, I should cross. I should pull that up. I'm pretty sure when you look at the pardon message, I think the pardon message has a lot of that forgiveness that that conversation about forgiveness at the end. Um, his inaugural pseudo inaugural right where he, his first speech to uh, when he's president when he's sworn in. Um, I'm beholden to one woman, to God and to one woman, right? And and there's these references to his marriage and Betty Ford and this really deep kind of familial family connection that he has. Wow. Um, and so so it's subtle. Now it's not it's not it's pre sort of religious right sort of Dobson 700 kind of the political activism um, that came to animate in the late 80s, like the late. 70s early 80s that kind of mm -hmm. brought ronald reagan in a different kind of yeah relationship there um but it was still very much kind of part of who ford was and it wasn't yeah. it didn't have the so abortion rights for for ford right his wife was notoriously kind of on the pro era pro kind of abortion side of things and ford was sort of Really? straddling that coming division that was going to happen in the Republican Party hmm. between sort of the old Rockefeller Republicans and yeah. what would become the pro-life folks. And that was one thing he kind of stitched very closely, but it's hard to say where he came down directly on that issue. Rockefeller, where was he in relation to Ford as far as, did Ford disagree with Rockefeller on things? So this is the funny thing. It's hard to suss out exactly where where Ford was. Ford was kind of the middle ground candidate between the Ronald Reagan conservative California Republicans mm -hmm. and the New York Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller kind of his vice president. That's right. And then there his was a competition president. when so when Ford becomes president, the vice presidency opens up and then you have to pick a new vice president like Ford, like Nixon had to do for Ford. And Nelson Rockefeller's on the short list and Ronald Reagan's on the short list. And Ford picked Rocky over over Reagan, and it would have been a unique kind of arrangement. And one wonders whether Reagan would have come about had he been sucked into the sort of that Watergate, post Watergate Ford malaise thing. Yeah, that Ford had to wrestle with. So there's some weird factors that move in different ways. But I think Ford was more. He's definitely more left leaning. Yeah. Than what what Ronald Reagan had become had become later on. But the party was moving underneath him a little bit. So okay. Was... Well, sometimes I just wonder if he was just like a squishy middle kind of a guy. Like he, 
I don't think of him as left per se, but just one of these people that the left people would take advantage of because he's so mushy in the middle. Kind of like, okay, yeah, 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 this is my intuition. I mean, it's, you know, it's not based on any archival research or anything like that, but my feeling is that Reagan, okay, Reagan is in California, right? The, the right. Democrats in California are a different kind of breed, I think, than I think the Midwestern right. Democrats. And so when you're getting along with people in the Midwest, there is this gen gentle feeling, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't sure. know how I'd say it. I mean, just, he, you know, yeah. it, there's just a, a, a decency and it might be just that kind of the outer edges of the so-called cutting edge Democrat party, it definitely wouldn't have been in Grand Rapids, the Democrat party. It wouldn't have been wow. in maybe even Mich maybe parts of Detroit, maybe, or maybe Ann Arbor, maybe, okay. but not, but, but not in not the, like but it not was in the Berkeley kind of, no, yeah, not in the, like it was in the Bay area. Gonna, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and not like it was right. in like I think that's right. <clears throat> probably the some parts of the East Coast, like New York and Boston, maybe. But I think that's true. Yeah. So I, I think it depends on the other side. Like what kind of person are you used to dealing with on the other side? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm guessing. He was No, no, I think that's right. So I think Reagan was a little bit more and Nixon too, I think, a little bit more on edge um i don't get the sense that eisenhower was really on edge about anything i mean but he was like a kansas guy you know and his his street cred was there's was sort of legit. a chill kind of thing that these guys yeah yeah i mean yeah. he had street cred like you know i mean who you know is there any question about what i've done in my life eisenhower um but if you know at these scrappy people like even trump you know, and look where he's from. He's sure. from New York. They're, the Democrats are crazy in New York. <laughs> they are insane, yeah, you know, yeah. and so that's his no. milieu. And he's kind of, you know, I think like that. And it so, makes them harder, I think. If you have to fight off that, I think it makes you a stronger yeah. kind of, you know, yeah, what you stand it, for and what you don't it, stand for. Yeah. On yeah. the other side, Bill Clinton. I mean, sure. I don't think of Bill Clinton as a radical insane guy i mean i don't like a lot of his policies sure i don't like that you know he assigned he signed the assault weapon ban for example but he's from arkansas and so you know i think he would that that was his background i mean he's probably totally corrupt but but um like, yeah you know, there's that still part like, of it too right you know he he wasn't there, there he, he was not one of these berkeley people you know and i think that's right think and that's carter right. Carter too, Georgia. Huh. Um, so you have. It was a less ideologically divided country, I think, in a lot of places. In a way, yeah. we become more ideologically divided, and so there were folks that were reasonable candidates that you could, you yeah, could approach that, right. Good. But but at the same time, though, what do you stand for, right? Right. And so I think Reagan brought something in, and particularly in facing down the Soviets, right. This okay. was one thing yeah. that Ford was, Ford was definitely yeah. on the detente side of that debate, okay. right? This kind of let's try to live and let live with the Soviets. What and did one Ford... of the things that really, okay, sorry, yeah. go ahead, Lucas. I didn't mean. 
No, no, no. I he's on the detente side. Yeah, definitely. So that, I guess yeah, someone so like Hen Jackson would have been out ahead of him, like Senator Jackson, Scoop Jackson. Yeah, Scoop Jackson was very the the Democrat from Washington State was very much kind of coming after coming after Henry Kissinger, right? So Ford mm -hmm. kept Nixon's Secretary of State at, for continuity in the foreign policy realm. But it was all of this kind of live and let live. And Scoop Jackson, Ronald Reagan, other folks were starting to raise that new neocon kind of argument. We're yeah. starting to raise points that Ford didn't, in my view, didn't really have a good hmm. have a good answer to in a lot of ways. And I think yeah, it's one of those it's one of those moments where if you believe that the Soviets are here forever, we can't fight them forever, right? Right. You've got to kind of work out some sort of deal and that might reflect yeah. back to your point that midwestern right you know, collegiality thing yeah that's um, right yeah it's interesting and of course getting out of vietnam like we did with our tail behind our, between our legs it's kind of hard to not be detente on that point what do, what do you think that ford thought about what nixon did with china I, I think he was generally supportive. Ford, Ford really being a congressman from Western Michigan, I don't think Ford had a really self-driven kind of, you know, foreign policy when he came in. He largely relied on Kissinger in a lot of ways. And so because Kissinger was the architect of sort of the sort of the peace accord, Paris Peace Accords in Vietnam and kind of winding it down, I think Ford just saw the utility of that and slid in. And similarly, because China and North Vietnam had such a close relationship on the communist issue. I think all of those pieces, I mean, I wish I was a better scholar of sort of Kissinger, but all of those pieces I think tie together. So we show the Chinese that we're decent people through the opening, right? And therefore we can use their influence to reduce pressure on our guys in Vietnam. And so I think there was some strategic calculations that might've happened there and Ford was all behind that. Now, it's interesting, though, like the, the fall of Vietnam, and then we find out in summer of 75, the Mayaguez, so this, this freighter that's off the coast. I was going to ask of, you about that. Yeah, off the coast of Cambodia, right? It gets taken over by a bunch of communists at the behest of the Chinese and the North Koreans and possibly the Soviets. So we have new intelligence that shows that they were like, let's give the, give, see if America's serious about operating in South China. And Kissinger comes out and says, yeah, we, we had to run off kind of cow cowardly from Vietnam, but understand that just we need to show the world that just because we left here, we're not some paper tiger that's just going to collapse. And he said, so they ordered like the full, like the JCS, the Joint Chiefs come to Ford and they have a whole list of options and said, Ford's pretty much like, let's do them all. Let's, let's show these guys that we're, we mean business. And yeah, so it was I'm, interesting. I'm, I'm that struggling side. to remember that that episode. I know it was in Richard Pius's book, Why Presidents Fail. Did you yeah. ever read that book? I'm going to pull it up. I don't think I have. No, actually. Yeah, I don't think I have. I'm going to pull it up. Okay. That means I have to so, leave your book here for a second. But Richard okay. Pius. No, no worries. Richard Pius wrote uh, a book called Why Presidents Fail. And. Let me see if I can share my screen again for those of you watching. Here we go. 
And uh, let's do hardcover. Uh, actually, Yulman required this book for us. And oh, it was even that was in your cycle modern, for him. Modern presidency, yeah. The book I or the class I took from him called the Modern Presidency. And let's see here. It looks like my screen is frozen. Oh, there we go. Well, maybe not. Let me try this again here. Well, <clears throat> I'm trying to show the um the table of contents because um, maybe I just refresh it here. Yeah. Richard Pius is a great, is a great scholar of, of sort of the American presidency. There's another book um, he had, I think it's constitution might be the constitution of wartime or something like that. I think he kind of makes, okay. I think that's Richard Pius. He makes some good, there's a, there's a whole host of stuff. It's a really good, if you're into institutional presidency questions, any of his stuff is actually really solid. So it's oh, yeah. interesting. I, I hadn't I hadn't been familiar with that, with that one. Well, he's got a chapter on the Mayaguez incident, but he doesn't have a chapter on Nixon, which is hilarious. I mean, it's just like, it's, really it's one of those things where it's, he goes, I think from, he starts from Eisenhower. He doesn't start with anybody. Else. He starts with Eisenhower and he goes up to Bo George Bush, but he leaves out Nixon. It's kind of funny. I guess That's he didn't want to. That's kind of weird. But he has he has that Mayaguez incident, and and I, I forget what he says about it. To be honest with you, but yeah. um, is that considered a failure on his part, for Fords? By by, I, I would disagree with the idea that it's a okay. failure. Right? I think yeah, I think this is the sense. reaffirmation. Yeah, I think this is the reaffirmation that the commander in chief power means something, right? Okay. You're not you're not simply a clerk of Congress. And so there's this whole episode where Ford so Ford comes out of Vietnam in April, right? And it happens over the Easter recess. So members of Congress as Saigon is falling, members of Congress are spread out all over the country. And Ford, we have the call sheets in the archives of where he had his staff try and hunt down and find leading members of Congress to consult them because you have this war powers resolution now on the books. Right. Ford has to authorize U.S. troops to help get our embassy staff and, you know, Vietnamese folks that helped us out, get them out. Right. Um, and so he's calling the phone on these guys and they're not returning his call. Like he can't, they're not actually <laughs> talking to him. He's like, Jerry, whatever you want. Yeah, you knock yourself out, right? Go ahead and do it. And Ford says, this is stupid. Why am I wasting my breath trying right. to talk with these people when the Constitution gives me the power to do it, right? Yeah. So he gets to the Maya thing, and now he's like, well, we're just going to do it, and we'll let Congress figure out what they're going to Did you see papers up. in the archives that confirm what you just said? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in the archives. So there's a, there's a transcript. The big one was okay. a transcript um, that's in the archives of a meeting Ford had with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which was the sort of committee of jurisdiction for, you know, for dealing with advising the president about how he should conduct foreign policy. Ford calls all these senators in and the late Robert Byrd from West Virginia, who had his own sort of ambitions to political ambitions at the time, uh, he raises a question. He goes, let me respectfully press this. I know you're doing what you think best and i certainly don't question your authority to do it but i want you to know i want to know why the leaders were not brought in why didn't you 
bring us in to talk about this. And Ford said, I have a right to protect American citizens. And he invokes the constitution. He goes, it's my constitutional responsibility okay. to command forces that can protect Americans. And so this is in Ford's own words and the transcription from the meeting is very clear. That's here's nice. where you see. Okay. Ford that's the just, kind of stuff in the archives that you like to see. Oh, it's like the best day. Lucas. Especially like, when he quotes the day. constitution and then you're like, oh, Booyah, what's up? What's it's up? like a dream. It's like a dream. Because what did he? What some... did he quote? What was the clause? Did he? Was it multiple clauses? Was it the commander in chief clause? Was it the vesting clause? Yeah. So in all of these cases, so there's a lot of boilerplate language that comes out in the in the um, actual materials, right? So the actual notice to Congress always claims Constitution of the United. My power is under the Constitution of the United States and the laws of the United States. Okay. namely commander-in-chief power, take-care clause, um, and others, depending on the particular, like the right to appoint ambassadors. So they have these boilerplate lines that they trot out. But what was really cool in the archives is you see how Ford not only just lets his lawyers write that stuff, but he actually kind of puts it in his own words. Hmm. And 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 that part of it is is really, really cool. Um, now, I can send you, you. How are you able to see that he put it into his own words? So, so you got so used to his voice that you could tell. Yeah. So, or I just have, or I have direct quotations in uh, transcripts of his public remarks, and so you'll see oh. these. You'll see these claims where he says, sort of. There's the overt ones like this, like this line. It's my constitutional responsibility to command oh, the forces. Yeah, yeah. That's not but boilerplate. Yeah. yeah, it's not a lawyer wouldn't have said actually, that. Yeah. No, not that way. And he actually embraces it. But the best one I found, Lucas, was in his own handwriting. Oh, I there asked you go. The archivist, that's the good stuff, right? That's there. the really good stuff. And so okay. in one of the press books, so they're prepping him up for the press briefings mm -hmm. that he has to give. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the veto. Mm -hmm. And so he literally says, the same constitution that gives Congress the power to override my veto gives me the power to issue the veto in the first place. So if you're claiming you can dictate where you get your powers from in the Constitution, I have it too. And it was just that way of selling that constitutionalism. We don't hear presidents do that anymore, but mm -hmm. he has this way of embodying kind of like everything you and I studied in terms of like the Federalist yeah. Papers, but bringing yeah. it in a way that fits people where they are. And that's the kind of stuff that made me say, this guy isn't just a suburban dad. This guy's actually like a believer in what we what we've got going. Yeah. On, you know. Um, so the presidency, the job transformed him by um, helping him pay attention to what was already there that he already liked, right. and he had the disposition to be faithful to it because he. He was a liking a constitutional kind of a guy. He was he liked the Constitution, but he he didn't really probably pay attention to that language as much as when he was a congressman. I think that's right. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. That, that's so very that's thing. human nature. I would say that's human yeah. Nature. And I think for somebody that's that's used to being like a politician, right? You're not sure. going to let me dig out my Federalist Papers. It's not like what we do every day, right? To profess things, you know, to people, but but. The fact that right. he, he brought it into the policy debates of his day mm. and packaged it in a way that defended American constitutionalism in a way that like your average Joe on the street says, 
Yeah, I think Jerry's right. And you know what? We do have that constitution. And it yeah, does yeah. Mean it does say that. Yeah, yeah it does say so, that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's he really does cool. have that right. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. I wanted to ask about, I hate it when people say on these, I have a, I have very firm opinions about podcasts when there's a, there's <laughs> a very prominent podcast that I love. <laughs> I'm not going to say what, sure. what it is because I love it so much. <laughs> I do actually love this podcast. Uh, it's a great cool. podcast, but the guy for years and years and years said, let me ask you this question. Instead of just asking the question, <laughs> he would, I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. He would say, he would say, That's let great. me ask you this. I, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, and he does it over <laughs> and over again, but it's such a great podcast uh, over the years that, you know, you can't, you just mm -hmm. kind of like you tolerate it in a way. But yeah, I almost did that. And I, I, I was kicking Caught myself. <laughs> um, it's perfect. But, uh, so, so I one thing on this real quick was, yeah. he was taught by a guy, uh, Robert Goldman, who was a Chicago, University of Chicago educated political philosopher. And Robert Goldwyn was a connection to one of, one of someone in our lineage a little bit further back, Lucas, like Leo Strauss. So Leo Strauss taught Robert Goldwyn about the Federalist Papers, about John Locke. And then Goldwyn got connected with a guy by the name of Don Rumsfeld in Chicago, because Rumsfeld was from Chicago. The two of them became friends. And Gold, Robert Goldwyn, a professor at Kenyon College, got really tied in with Rumsfeld and followed him around. And when Rumsfeld joined Gerald Ford, Ford brought in Robert Goldwyn. So he had an in-house sort of Straussian constitutionalist teaching teaching Gerald Ford about Alexander Hamilton and Hamiltonian presidencies. And in Robert Goldwyn's notes, I was able to line up a meeting that Goldwyn and Richard Cheney, Dick Cheney, future vice president, had with Ford on like a Sunday afternoon teaching Ford about the veto. And so Robert Goldwyn has a marked up copy of Fed 73 and he walks in to the White House and we have it on the call logs and the meeting logs to show that the president spent a good, a considerable amount of time with Robert Goldwyn talking through Hamilton's design for the veto. And Ford vetoed more, uh, he's like the fourth all time in terms of rate of vetoes. Like he issued wow. a ton of vetoes during his time, right? He had an oppositional Democratic Congress. Yeah, and yeah. Stuff. And so Ford was getting hammered in the press. And so Goldwyn's yeah. suggestion to Cheney and Rumsfeld, who had Ford's ear, was, let me talk to him and let's see if there's some way we can borrow Alexander Hamilton's logic and defend the veto and say, look, we're not, this isn't President No stuff. I'm not just blocking you for my health, right? I want you to do a better deliberative job at developing good legislation. And so that's the real, that could have been, that was my best, that was like the best day. I had a really, I had the double steak at Denny's that night, right? I had the, I had the whole thing. I had the dessert. Chick I had you had everything. the chicken that fried steak. Really good, yeah. Yeah. It was You're like, you know day. what? Put some extra gravy on that. Yeah. Is it this guy? Is this Robert? Yeah. The parchment. Yeah. From parchment to power. It's the same guy. Book. Same guy. Yeah. And there's a ton of stuff. Yule, another, Robert, this is another Yulman book. He required us to read this. I can't yeah. remember for which class, but they were old battle buddies in different ways. No and, kidding. And, That's a good Robert book. Robert Golden. Yeah, it's a great book. 
Goldwyn wrote a lot for AEI. So if folks want to go bum around AEI, there's all sorts of stuff about from, that Robert Goldwyn wrote for the American wow. Enterprise Institute. How cool is that? Um, but it's all on this constitutional stuff. And uh, really, really a neat guy. But saved, I think, if I was to sort of trace the kind of pattern for Robert Goldwyn's connection to Ford, mm -hmm. uh, may have may have saved some of the constitutionalism and made the constitutionalism more prominent in Ford's thinking that he then internalized and, and taught. No about. kidding. Yeah, yeah. I lo I've looked at this book quite a bit, and I I never knew much about the guy, but I yeah. could tell that he spent a lot of time. I did not know he was a student of Leo Strauss until just now. Yeah, no, so, really yeah, it's a good, it's a good book. Yeah. So, um, what did, what did uh, Ford think about the proposal for um, an independent counsel? Yeah, not the special prosecutor that that Nixon kept firing, but the independent counsel statute. Did he sign that into law? Yeah, he, he did not. He did not. That would later okay. come under that would later come under the Carter administration, as I recall, I think. Um the independent counsel law, they fought pretty heavy. Okay. Um, so that's that's very interesting to me. Because yeah. he takes power on the resignation of Nixon. And then pretty soon after that, isn't it festering in Congress, this idea that there should be an independent counsel in the executive branch? Yeah, almost immediately. Right? I would have already. Yeah, they're already talking about this, right? So you have that Saturday Night Massacre in 73. Right. And the idea that a president can fire the people that are investigating executive malfeasance, they're like, come on. Like Congress is like, clearly this is bad. We need another, we need a way of protecting and insulating um, mm -hmm. that from political meddling. And so they, yeah. they propose it, right? And then Scalia, but Scalia, this is where I think when you understand Antonin Scalia's jurisprudence that kind of emerges later, mm. I think all of his views on the separation of powers and the executive congressional relations really get cauterized, like really kind of put together uh, in the Ford White House. I think when you, you can tie a line to some of these guys, right? So Scalia, <clears throat> Richard uh, Cheney, Don Rumsfeld, there are views on executive power were formed in the Ford administration when these guys were getting hit all the time by congressional subpoenas, this constant kind of barrage from Congress, gotcha. well-intentioned, right? Trying to reform sure. what they feared was a problem with the White House. But yeah. those guys felt embattled. And when yeah. you get to later on, you get a much more militant presidency that maybe yeah. was a different, it was a different time that formed their minds. Um, yeah, Sorry, that took that's a path insightful. down a rabbit hole that I didn't know I was going down. There. No, no, that's a very insightful bridge to other Republican administrations because yeah. they are, you know, prominent people, Rumsfeld and Cheney, both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember who was who was uh, who was the defense secretary twice. Was it Rumsfeld? Yeah. So so right before the election, they moved out. They moved out James Schlesinger, who was the holdover from Nixon, and mm -hmm. Ford wanted somebody that could could really go to town in the in the Pentagon. And so Ford okay. sent Don Rumsfeld to defense to fill in. And so he became the youngest defense secretary. And then he okay. became the oldest defense secretary. So he left eventually left the White House and went over to gotcha. 
So he had spent some time in Congress, so he could he knew some some of the game over there. Yeah, yeah, knew what you're supposed to say. Yeah, that's right. And I think he had some experience being like he was in executive leadership positions. I think he was like the Searle Company and like the people that make. I think it's Splenda. I think the Splenda. Really? So he had he had some some business acumen that made the Pentagon kind of a good yeah. place for kind of a CEO type. And then Cheney was his H.W. Booth. Okay. So then he, and then he was later, he was later um, defense secretary under the first Bush. That's Is that right. right? Yeah, okay. That's and right. then vice president under George W. Bush. You got it. Yeah. So this is a huge, now what you said about Scalia was interesting because Scalia is serving under Ford in the Justice Department high up along yeah, with our former legal counsel. Yeah. Okay. Along yeah. with our former professor Yulman. Right. And Scalia, we're talking about the independent counsel statute that eventually passed. Yeah. Signed into to law by probably a Democrat president. Is Carter. that right? I think it's Carter. Yeah. Carter. That sounds yeah. right. I don't think Reagan would have signed it into law, but maybe no, they tried to fight it. That's that Morrison okay. v. Olson case that comes yeah. up later. But yeah. see, that's the that's the link with Scalia. Is Scalia is so famous for writing that dissent, which is a beautiful dissent in it's Morrison amazing. v. Olson. So everybody, drop what you're doing, put your cereal <laughs> down because I know you're eating cereal in the early morning now. Just put the cereal <laughs> down and just go to Google Scholar and look up. Uh, Morrison versus Olson on yeah. this. And I, you know, I don't think I had ever put that together until right now that it would have been Morrison versus Olson. Yeah. That was written by a Ford guy. Yeah. A Ford that. guy. Yeah. So if you go to Google Scholar, I'm just going to show the students sure, how no, to do absolutely. this. Yeah, absolutely. Get the, get the legit thing. Don't go to Wikipedia. Yeah, go the real deal. Yeah, if you're going to do it. Case <laughs> law, federal court. I think the Supreme Court is federal, I think. I think so. <laughs> and uh, Morrison versus Olson. Yep. 1988. Look for 1988. There it is on the top. Is, what is the line? What is the line there? This wolf comes as a wolf or something like that. Sometimes yeah. you get cases that come as wolves in sheep's clothing. But this oh, wolf yeah. comes as a wolf in the Scalia descent. Yeah. So you got, you can just do a little uh, search for dissent and then you go right to the Scalia dissent. This is the best reading you're going to read on the presidency probably all day and maybe all week. I think that's right. But yeah, the the wolf quote, let me, let me do the search on the wolf quote. Yeah. That's amazing. This, this wolf comes as a wolf. (laughs) Wolf is in sheep's clothing. Look how short that sentence is and how, but you know, Scalia worked for Ford. I totally didn't connect that until just now. And then Ford is coming in right as the independent council statute is like all the rage because of Nixon. That's very interesting. So they had to push all of this off, right? And so, yeah. and so, Yolman Scalia, Ed Levy, Edward Levy is the guy who was a who was a Democrat, but like a law and order Democrat of an old sort okay. in Chicago, and he was the AG, the Attorney General that sort of oversaw Scalia, Bork. It's like a it's like a King Arthur's court, I think. When you line up those guys, right? Yeah. You've got these great 
sort of scions of, of kind of American conservative jurisprudence that all sort of rotated around that Ed Levy kind of schoolmaster place on the mm -hmm. seventh floor of the Justice Department. And then they go on to have these distinguished legal careers. But I think that crucible, they always felt like Congress was trying to take them out. And, yeah. and so they always were like, you know what, we got to fend off the independent counsel. There was an effort to write a detailed statutory charter for the FBI. Maybe that might be a good thing today. Maybe we'd benefit from very clear guidelines, right, on the yeah, FBI. Maybe. But it narrows it narrows executive discretion in a lot yeah. of ways, right? And so that was why these guys said, no, we need to have the freedom to do what the country requires. And if Congress makes that too difficult, everybody's going to get, everybody's worse for it. Um, and so they tried to push some of that off. So when you, now we're going to take a look at your table of contents here. Sure. The national nightmare is over. Basically what you're saying there is Ford makes everybody feel <laughs> hunky dory for a while, a little while, a little while, but the national, it's kind of a misnomer. Actually, that title, my editor and I we kind of talked about this. It's like, well, you got to deal with the pardon or something, right? Yeah. And so, and so they go right away. At, yeah. And they say, and say the reality of it is, is it's a nightmare sort of over. There was a question mark. Is it actually over? Because all of those economic problems, Vietnam, all that crushing in on Ford. So he yeah. said it before he believed it in a way. Yeah. So the, we talked about the veto and the commander in chief. Sure. Whatever happened with the Mayag was, what was the resolution of that? So, so Ford was able to successfully retake the, the freighter. They okay. recaptured the freighter. Easily um, or did people die? To, yeah, some Marines lost their lives. And okay, so that's Ford what Pius was making a big deal of. I, I think that's what Richard Pius was complaining about. If yeah. I'm not, and I mean, it's one of those things that maybe, and and so the part of the part is where the lives were lost. If I recall this correctly, right. where the lives were lost was part of the show of force element, like the punishing the Khmer Rouge that it took the freighter. Okay, and so maybe there was some question about whether, you know, that degree of military intervention was absolutely necessary and i think that might be probably where pius is kind of critiquing it a little bit if i had a guess but i'll okay. have to read this book i have to look at this book now you, you turned me on to this so this is good yeah I, that would be a great um foil giving me an idea right. on another publication so that's good because this is the stuff i need yeah so yeah, that's yeah. Huge. that would be great foil for your students too if you're yeah. teaching a class on this then really? you know have them look at what Pius says and what you say about this. Um, spy master and in chief in the intelligence community. It's been a while yeah. since I've looked at that. Remind us what that's all that's about. Okay. It seemed like there so, was a yeah. lot of stuff going on with the CIA and all the sorts of like it, your yeah. the, uh, congressional no, it's, investigations. It's, yeah, it's wild. So in December of 74, like literally right after, they're still figuring out how the phones work in the White House, right? Seymour Hirsch, the guy who runs the New York Times or wrote for a, an investigator for the New York Times, writes this giant expose. He wrote about the My Way massacre. And so he kind of cut his teeth on sort of exposing government corruption and exposing cover-ups. So there was a little bit of a questionable human rights thing with a U.S. unit in Vietnam. And so he got like all sorts of accolades for that. Yeah. His next iteration in seven, December of 74, is he comes out with this massive kind of expose of everything the CIA has ever done wrong. Um, and he says, there's a report that exists 
that shows all of these things that the CIA has done wrong. And wow. instantly the press snaps back into that Watergate frenzy. Right. It's like chumming the water, like shark week or whatever, <laughs> right? They just chum the water up and then everybody starts trying to say, well, the CIA is corrupt, all of these things, look at what they're doing. And Ford had to figure out how to keep something secret that we needed to keep secret. Like we can't, we're still fighting the Cold War and we still have guys in Vietnam. And at yeah. the same time, comply with all of these congressional requests to get rid of the bad, yeah. bad stuff. What, um, yeah, exactly. How How is Congress um, a pain in the executive branch? Maybe we need to state exactly what that is. Is it the document sure. requests? So, is it just the, yeah, so this is the constant request yeah. for information? Yeah, they asked for the whole, like the background of all of this, right? So they asked the executive branch. So, and they were requiring officials to testify to yeah. particular under operations oath. That, under oath that the yeah. CIA had, had conducted. This is not like attempts. an informal meeting with your boss. This is, this is not like, <laughs> this is a real deal. This is, yeah. It, can imagine, uh, you know, like your chair emails you about a student, like, there, you know, there's, we need to talk to you about. Uh, you know, Missy and her D plus. Uh, right. Imagine getting called in, and you're and now you're like taking your under oath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on know, a green felted desk. All the desks right. at the time had this green tablecloth. They've changed it now, but these guys talked about being behind a green felted desk. Like well, this is my nightmare. Okay, and let's so, let, let's press into this a little bit. Like, okay, for sure. someone in the executive branch, why is this? Because some people, some people might think, what's that a big deal? You just go in there and you tell them what the what happened. What's a big deal? What you did. Yeah. Well, the really the really dangerous it takes a lot of time. It. Yeah, it takes a ton of time. You're you're As trying to run the government. You're, you're you're in the middle of stuff, and yeah. you have to go over there, and and it's like you know these this committee of people that don't really even know what's going on. And they're asking you stuff that like, it's just for their political career, basically. And that's that's what I was going to say. That's exactly right. No. They're just posturing. Right. And so you have several senators. So Frank church was the head of the church. Yeah, committee. Sure. Yeah, if yeah. you're, if you're into the, look, looking up Frank church and the church report, he yeah. was all about running for president. And so he was a Senator from Idaho and he's trying to build his brand as being a serious fighter taking on government corruption, you could write the ad, right? And so he he's trying to prove that, you know, the CIA is out of control and your Congress is on the job. Um, right. And so they just literally request a bunch of documents about, you know, how does the CIA approve things? Is the CIA subject to democratic control? Are they just sort of a rogue elephant running wild yeah. without any presidential control? And what the Republicans did that was wise is they said, if you're going to look at Richard Nixon, let's look at what Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson did. And they wound the clock back. And so politically, as a political strategy, and this is all through their deliberations, right? As a political strategy, by broadening the scope to say, if we're going to look at the CIA, let's look at the whole history of the CIA. Um, and then, and from that, right, they got a more fully full picture of how, for the most part, Congress had been asleep at the switch and just said, whatever you guys want to do, you do it. And so by flipping the tables on Congress, they were able to kind of avoid some of that. At the That's time, interesting. Yeah, at the time, there was an ambassador, a U.S. ambassador 
or diplomat that was killed in Greece, um, Richard Welch. And he was killed for an unrelated reason, but the Ford people ran with that. And they said, look, this is what happens when people reveal secrets right. that hurt people in, abroad. Yeah. And they released his like home address and some, some I think it was wow. the Intercept released it or something. And then they showed up at his house and these Greek revolutionaries killed Richard Welch. Um, and Ford said, you know what? This We're never letting a Richard Welch happen again. We're going to write an executive order that fixes things so members of Congress can be satisfied that the presidency has healed itself, right? And so he came out and wrote an executive order. I think it was uh, 11905, 11905, and it lasted until the reforms after 9-11. So it was and that, longest, yeah. that had to do with... Uh protecting classification to Congress or something like that? Yeah. So Classified it set up, Yeah. So it set up these oversight boards okay. that were kind of not really kind of part of the machine of the CIA, but mm -hmm. they had enough people on them that congressmen could feel comfortable, you know, relying okay. on the word and, and things would like they, that. Would they test if, okay, so the congressmen, they wouldn't get the stuff itself they would have to just ask these guys about it so there were ways that were or there were oversight so it clarified i mean there was a whole bunch of stuff about reporting requirements that were outlined in it right. so senate intelligence yeah. house intelligence so they had standing committees that emerged out of these investigations they could see the actual stuff they could go in camera actually, or something right with like a like a like one of those special tents that they go into like yeah they call it a skiff and and they yeah, can look right, at all right. those materials but that that plan that Ford came out with was an example of how the, the Constitution allows a president a lot of options to centralize reforms okay. and say, well, you guys are chattering classes about this and getting distracted about the 76 election. I'm actually going to take charge of my own house here, yeah. set it in order. Are you guys OK with this? And they weren't entirely happy, but it took the air out of the sails of those intelligence investigations in a big way. So Ford basically said, I'm going to protect classified information. We're going to ratchet yeah. down accountability and yeah. also do something to throw these Congress people a bone. Yeah. Is that fair to say? I think that's right. I think that's right. We're going to give them reforms that we can live with. Okay. And in this, and in this sense, right, he's, it's that good marriage model he had. He said, but it, but it doesn't mean he has to follow their lead. Right. And I think that's the yeah, most interesting okay. part of it. Yeah. It's when he acts and leans in on something and takes charge and takes responsibility that you actually, the members of Congress aren't as opposed to you once you kind of, yeah. you know, move in that direction. That's a nice, nicer way to say it than the way I said it. Cause you, no, no, I, Congress is a human being on the marriage analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I'm thinking of a dog that just won't shut up. Well, there's that too. And the there's only way too. you can get him to shut up is to get that Outback Give Steakhouse, uh, or no, not or the Lucille's barbecue out of the freezer and th throw it. Right, right. There. Send that rib over there. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep him busy over there for 20 minutes. Right. You know, right. that's interesting. Um, so you, you got this last uh, sure. chapter that's substantive. Yeah. Besides the conclusion, not that the conclusion's not substantive. No, I know what you mean. I know but what you mean. Uh, the take care clause. Um, 
and legislative encroachments. We've talked a little bit about legislative encroachments, but uh, what does Gerald Ford uh, particularly uh, stand out? What stands out about him on the take care clause? Yeah. So this one's the really cool one. So the, the, Mm. um, in terms really of high cool. constitutional. Yeah, this is a really cool one. I mean, it's kind of okay. nerd stuff and it's kind of intricate a little bit, but it relates to the INS v. Chada decision that oh, will later man. come up that's under, really, under rake. Yeah, that's really nerdy. Yeah, so it's super nerdy. So this is an idea that Congress um, can pass a delegation of authority to the president. Like we're going to, like, I don't know if you think about the the military construction and the Trump border wall, right? Mm-hmm. Congress provides a piece of legislation right. to the president that allows him to do certain things on delegated authority. Right. right. Well, right. the deal is to yeah. get the delegation, Congress reserves the rights to continue your dog analogy a little bit to yeah. jerk the president's leash back. Right. Now the president so is treating the, the president as a dog. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we're so switching the, the analogy a little bit. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I flipped it around there. Yeah. But pulling the pulling the leash back on the executive. So encourage right. the executive to take a politically hard decision. Like in this case, they were talking about um so it's a legislative their, veto, in other words. Yeah, legislative veto. That's the yeah, that's right. That's the correct term. Yeah. Which is not in the constitution. No, not even not not explicitly, mm-hmm. but I guess you could argue that it's something like it is there because they have the church they have the power of the purse yeah and they can yeah. and what's to stop them from putting conditions on the money and, okay and so changing that around yeah yeah okay so the the border wall funds or where i was trying to think of where you're going to go with that the the border wall funds come from a pot that was originally designated to something else and but the yeah, president the has construction yeah, so the president has some kind of discretion about how to divvy that up. That's exactly right. Yeah, so okay. so the president is given the power by Congress because what do you think when you think of like, hey, right. we need to build, we need to build a new post office or something like that. That's a okay. congressional power, right? Right, right, right. So so we give a little bit of power to the president and say Congress is not really sure what the president might need, so we're going to give him a little bit of discretion. To do yeah. what he thinks is best. Uh-huh. Well, at the time, they liked doing this. Seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like a good idea at the That's time. Right. This is his explanation for any disaster that happens. Everything. Yeah. Simplicity. What's the other one? Simplicity. When, when stupidity is the reason for the... Is a sufficient explanation for the data. (laughs) No further recourse to another explanation is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. He said it better than that. Great lines. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're dead on. But this idea that that if Congress gives power to the president and gives discretion to the president, what gives them the right to then, after the president goes out on a limb, to say, no, bad president and pull him back? It's the subordination of the president. Yeah that Ford rejected. And so what I look at in that chapter is pretty much all of the early efforts to think about a test case to take to the Supreme Court that would have, you know, been a few, right. been an early form of INS Vichata. And I think they were ready to go had they had the electoral mandate in 76. They okay. might have tried to push a little bit more. Um, 
But this is where Scalia, who later was on the D.C. circuit for INS Vigil. Yeah. So there was some interesting movement there. I've never read his. Did he write an opinion in that case? I think he I think was he, he was on the three that. judge panel. I think he or it was on, it might have been on the on the on bank. I don't know exactly. I'll have to on check on. that out. Okay. Hmm. Um, he might have been involved in there somewhere, but I believe he wasn't on the court yet. No, but they borrowed, that, would have, that was 1983. Yeah. So it was a right around that time. Okay. And this whole hmm. test case mm -hmm. was uh, they had policy reasons, and so they were trying to figure out which policy, which legislative veto they would use to challenge. Um, mm -hmm. And so they were looking around and they found some obscure provisions of the OMB, but they weren't sure how the Supreme Court would vote on it at the time. And so they said, we're not going to bring this test case right now. And later, the same people that were sort of floating around Ford later reinvigorated it under the INS Vichada stuff under Reagan. And so it kind of became a became a thing uh, later. But that's what I look at. I look at the ways in which Ford tried to fight back against a yeah. variety of kind of legislative encroachments and explored the idea of fighting a legislative veto. So that was kind of a catch-all chapter in a way. So right. a little bit on legislative vetoes. I've got a little bit on the FBI charter and some things. What, what was the INSB chatta about? You want to tell everybody about that? Sure, briefly? yeah. So that case, that case is a great case. So there's a guy... Yeah. Uh, Chada, who came and overstayed a student visa. Uh, and I think if I remember this correctly, the Justice Department wanted to, if I remember this correctly, they wanted to, they wanted to allow him to, I think they wanted to allow him to stay. I, I sometimes get this backwards. They wanted to allow him to stay. And Congress came in and said, no, you're going to push him out. Or it was vice mm -hmm. versa. I forget the exact fact pattern, but the goal was for the test case was to get, and they knew that he was going to stay and he had this, he had this story about he had a family here and all of this, right? So they wanted to let this immigrant alien stay in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so Congress changes the rules. They came up and changed the rules on, uh, on the president after the attorney general had come out and there it is. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Now, this is one I, I'm just curious. I have to figure out whether whether it was. I'll well, see there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to look down here and see. Maybe there's a D.C. circuit. Yeah, I don't no, think I don't so. Know. That says from okay. the ninth. So I may be I may be mistaken on this a little bit. Yeah. OK. Gotcha. So, so the ninth so, circuit. OK. Yeah. But Rex Lee, Solicitor General Lee, Rex Lee. Mm -hmm. uh was part of that triumvirate of folks in the Justice Department at the time. Assistant Attorney General Ted Olson, mm -hmm. right? So that's Ted Olson. Later from Olson, Morrison versus Morrison Olson. Olson. Yeah. That's so, interesting. So Chada was involved in this, and they invalidated. So this, as it says here, to invalidate the decision of the executive branch mm -hmm. pursuant to the authority delegated by Congress. Right. And so he overstays his visa, and then Congress effectively tries to tries to uh, change the decision that the Attorney General made. So they allow allow him to stay, right? I think they allow him to stay. Well, did they come out with this? This is, yeah, this is terrible. Yeah, let me. It, it's been a while. 
it's it's been a while. Let me let me search conclusion. Sure. See what see if that helps. I might just skip down to the bottom. It's I a long it. one. I got it here too. It's a long one. I remember uh, printing this out and reading it. <laughs> These are know, challenging to read. And I should be you... better on this. Okay, here we got dissent. Why it was dissenting. Um yeah, I think I think yeah. the basic issue was oh, I didn't know there was a dissent. So okay, so it's right before the dissent. I I just checked it out, right? An immigration, an immigration judge, so in the executive branch, decided to keep him, and the House said, "No, you have to deport him." And so the idea that they would remove this from the sky, so it fits all yeah. of the political narratives, right? That right. You want. And the the general end of the day is the, the the holding is is that if you give a power over to the president you can't reserve this power to kind of yeah. second guess them you and can't phrase it in such a way congress you're very creative you're good at giving money with conditions but you can't phrase it in such a way that you undermine separation of powers which is another right. part that's of the a, constitution so this is why you got the Republican professor right here. Yeah, this is right. great. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got, yeah, it exceeded its scope. See, I think I remember this is why I was a little bit uneasy with how he put this. This is Berger. He yeah. says, in my view, the Congress, uh, when Congress undertook to apply its rules to Chada, it exceeded the scope of its constitutionally prescribed authority. So far, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then I would <laughs> not reach the broader question of whether legislative vetoes are invalid under the presentment clause. It's kind of like, I don't know. To me, it's it's sort of like saying Roe versus Wade. Yeah, this one lady can get an abortion. We we're not going to reach the broader issue of whether other women can get an abortion. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe no. it's disanalogous. It's probably disanalogous. No, no, I mean, there's something there, right? I mean, they write in so many weird ways, and they want to have their cake and eat it too, and so they try to. So White liked. Speaking of abortion, he dissented in Roe versus Wade, and he likes the legislative veto. I'm going to have to look this up. Yeah. Maybe. I I, I, oh, I no. now I'm going to have to look this up again. So he was a yeah yeah. It's such a weird, it's such a weird, weird case, but it's a great case in a lot of ways. I think it teaches a lot about that kind of ways so, in which members of Congress drive, like you say, they're creative authors, right? And so, so it violated the presentment clause. So Alex, you, you've been teaching for a while now. What kind of courses do you teach there? Yeah. So I got, I'm really fortunate here. I, um, so I wrote on Ford. Um, but I get to teach on con law. So I do oh, all of cool. the constitutional law cases, which why I'm a little I'm a little embarrassed about the sketchy on, on <laughs> INS Vichata, but we'll figure it out. It's That's a learning right. process. I'm in the learning process here. Yeah. The um the so I teach con law one, uh, which is national powers, which is most of this separation of powers type stuff. Right. So how the branches interact, congressional um qualifications, mm -hmm. those types of things. And then I do my other upper division course, I do Con Law 2, which is Bill of Rights, Civil oh, Rights. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah, it's a great job. I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Man. Uh, and then the third course, I do a Law, Politics, and Society course. <clears throat> and that one's a little amorphous. 
And so I get to do a lot of cats and dogs in there. But lately, I've been really into um, looking at opioid, the opioid epidemic a little bit and trying to think about um, kind of side effects of, of law. So when you pass a law, you say, hey, we're going to restrict the ability of pharmacies to prescribe pills for people for pain. Well, if you do that and you don't treat the underlying addiction, where do those people go but into black tar heroin and that type of... So, so what are the ways in which the law impacts society and how does society react to those laws a little bit? And so we play around with that and it's a little bit of crim, criminal you, procedure and stuff too. Do you teach every year these con law courses or is it every other year? Yeah, so I'm fortunate here that it's re I'm relatively stable. So every year I do con law one in the spring and then con law two wow. in the, or con law one in the fall and con law two in the spring. What time and of day then, are they? Are they always at the same time? Yeah. No, they vary up a little bit, okay. unfortunately. So it depends on the year. But but then I also have my intro American obligations too. Okay, so you do, have intro. Yeah, so I teach a lot of intro civics. What um, what's your teaching load? So it's a th technically a three two. So I'll do three two. Wow, I know it's like a dream. It's like a dream. I remember. And, and I, you I remember have to teach the, five in the summer, right? Yeah, yes, That's the catch. seventeen, right? Yeah. No, it's a weird, it's a, it's a nice thing to be able to do that. Um, the other part of it that I didn't anticipate, which is the wild part of the liberal arts college, um, the amount of, I'm fortunate in, in a lot of ways, because I get to work with a lot of students. I have about 40 advisees typically. And so we see those folks twice a year at least. And then whenever they're failing a course or whatever. So mm -hmm. I really get a cool chance to, to see some, some kids who are, you know, have the right intention, but maybe don't have it all together yet or something like that. And we can, we can really do good work. I do my best work one-on-one -on -one, I've discovered and, and getting the chance to do this with you, Lucas, and get to talk to your yeah. audience and get to talk to people. I mean, this is what I think, I think you and I came from a similar, from a similar place. Like if we're not yeah. teaching, it doesn't, oh, like, yeah. why are we doing this? You know, yeah, like, me what are we doing? yeah. it's really cool to see that, that there's still a place where education might still happen here and there. <laughs> it, it's, it's eh, there's, it, I have my moments. Ask me tomorrow. I might have a completely different answer for you about Is that it. the school that Clarence Thomas went to or is it yeah, different? It's, it is really amazing. Yeah. So Cla this was Clarence, Clarence Thomas, Thomas went there. No way. There's a tree that I can see right out here. So we have an arboretum, which is a new England, cool new England thing where we plant all these different trees. There's the Clarence Thomas tree outside my window, which wow. is really cool. That is um, really awesome, man. Holy yeah, cow. it's really cool. The problem is, wow. is that for obvious reasons, being a liberal arts college in New England, politically, there are some pressures that make them somewhat skeptical at times of him, which is <laughs> which is really kind of unfortunate in a lot of ways. He's our most prominent. I mean, when you think about it, yeah, he's our most prominent. Something alum. tells me you're 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 um. You're, you're leaving some things out in that description, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, you're being very kind. I think in that description, sure. um, he, uh, you're being very gene congenial yeah. that, that, uh, I mean, I'm so jazzed for you. It's really great because I'm such a huge fan of Clarence Thomas. I used to be a bigger fan, but then I lost all this weight. I used to be, <laughs> I used to be huge. Huge. You got that right away. I didn't even have to explain it. That's fantastic. Lucas. There's okay. been so many people that just looked at me like, huh? What? What? 
And then uh, I just tell them to look up the word big in the dictionary. And, and then I say, no, you know what? Never mind. Never mind. It, well, it's, it, it's great. I mean, it's a really good run of folks. I'm, I'm fortunate here. And I'm anything. Do you, that, so do you have to write books to keep yeah, your so job? I have, yeah, I have to write a ton. So that's okay. what I'm in the throes of at the moment. I'm so you have on, to write to in the summer. Yeah, we write. Well, even then, I'm, I'm writing, trying to have stuff in the hopper almost all the time. So that's the trade. Gotcha. Um, but I, uh, they want journals, they want books. What do they want? They want, they want some journals. Uh, they want, they want, yeah, any of the above, any and all of the above. Peer reviewed is the key. So they want, so not law um, review journals. Yeah, no, they, they're actually encouraging me. There's a list of, we have a list of places that are target lists. And so I'm hopeful I'm working through some of them on some of okay. the projects I'm working on and stuff. So I got one on declare war, right? Can a president oh, cool. veto, veto a war declaration? And my argument is, yeah. I mean, it's just like any other piece of law. So why can't a president veto a war declaration? Oh, that's interesting. So there's some cool stuff that I get to do. Yeah, so it's really neat. Now, uh, what's the summer like? Is it really hot and is it cold in the winter? Yeah, so it's balmy here for a, for a guy coming from California. So this was the weird thing. So I lived in California for a little while and then I moved here. And uh, humidity here is a whole other thing. I'm convinced everyone here just lives in water. It's either frozen water yeah. or snow, right? Water in the air. Like yep. it's just constant moisture. It's green. It's beautiful. We got great foliage right now. So it's pretty awesome. Are uh, there really good right. bird songs? Do they have bird? I, I haven't. Yeah. yeah, they have good ones, good birds, but I haven't mastered any of them yet. So, <laughs> yeah. So you walk out in the spring and you're like, there's the good bird song. That's <laughs> yeah. why I'm here. Because <laughs> yeah, right. we have stupid bird songs down in California. I mean, they're really? just the same little stupid bird songs. But but the the East Coast, oh, the bird songs, I can't imagine. Yeah. Well, Alex, thank you so much for spending, gosh, two hours with us uh, on Blue Gerald Life. Ford and separation of powers. Ah, man. I know, right? Mind blown. <laughs> I really so learned awesome. a lot from you. And you are clearly a master of this material. Thank you. And when you read through the book, which I have, uh, I, I enjoy all the little anecdotes. And I, I especially love that you back up everything from archival research that you per personally uh, looked at. Um, so you are a classical, classic scholar kind of a guy. I appreciate that. Luke, yeah, you do it lot. the right way. It means yeah. a lot. When I look through your list of guests, I mean, this is one of the great honors is to get yeah. included and get to talk. I mean, if you work yeah. through your whole your whole archive, you have some amazing people you've had come and talk to you. And it's just so neat that it's you're amazing. putting it in a format, right? Yeah. That people can actually access while they're driving around or sitting on the freeway or whatever. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's just amazing. It's really slick. So Thanks. I'm really honored. I'm really honored. Yeah. I, I, I have a, a vision for this as a, like an archivist. I want to put some stuff out there that lasts for decades yeah. and so that's kind of the challenge for me is is with podcasts these days there's certain folks that just want to stay on kind of the cutting edge of whatever people are talking about sure. now and and uh there there's a panic that you're going to lose people's attention and especially yeah. if you're trying to monetize it it's really sure. It, it's really, I think, harmful for the kind of work that you and I do, which is more careful and more sure. perspicuous for, for the future. Like yeah. what people are going to look back on, for example, Trump 
and they're not going to have memory of it. They're not going to be able to draw from their personal memory of it to check the, the they're not going to have a BS detector on, on certain things. I think that's and right. so they're, they're going to, I'm, I'm just giving you an example. I mean, obviously it could be any other topic, but, sure. but they're, they're just going to piece together whatever they have. And I think that's how it is with Nixon and Ford too. Like you yep. look back and I don't have memory of that, you know, I, yeah. I don't. So, so yeah. I just go by what people say, the professors say, what are they saying? What, you know, and it could be a disaster what they're saying. And it's nice to have a kind of a, uh, a presentation of trustworthy voices that, are talking about all sorts of different topics no, it's and, and it, so I'm hoping that in the future, people don't look back at Republicans and think, well, they were all a bunch of crazy crazies people. Yeah. Right. No, no, actually there's quite a bit going on. And there's so. more thoughtfulness than people give people credit for. And only by doing yeah. what we just did, Lucas, like this long format. Yep. Can you actually kind of unpack fast. this stuff? And that's the part that's the beautiful thing. So I just, you can't, you can't I'm script 100% it. behind you. Yeah, no, this yeah. is awesome. You got to have, awesome. it's got to be gen genuine. I appreciate that. Yeah, a lot. for sure. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, for sure. We'll see you soon, Lucas, for sure. Okay.